listening to Broadcast Behind the Screens, the podcast brought to you by Broadcast and Broadcast Intelligence. This week is our Edinburgh TV Festival special, featuring an exclusive interview with Patrick Walters, exec producer of the Netflix show Heartstopper. Hello and welcome. We are back in London. Yep, we have returned from Edinburgh, although barely. I'm currently working from home with COVID. So thank you, Edinburgh TV Festival, for that little gift. (laughs) And if you're wondering who we are and where we've been, I'm Heather Fallon, one of the reporters on Broadcast. And I'm Alice Redman, Head of Content at Broadcast Intelligence. And Yep, we've just got back from a great week at Edinburgh TV Festival. So we're going to recap some of our highlights and some of the major themes of the festival. And we've got a special interview as well. Let's crack on. (laughs) So there's lots to discuss. Um, Heather, why don't you start by telling me your first key takeaway? Maybe we can volley back and forth a bit. So I'd say, yeah, the first one that springs to mind was not necessarily the one that I thought everyone would be talking about, but bizarrely, the major PSBs kept circling back in all the spotlight sessions to this idea of reboots and revivals. So it started off with Kevin Ligo. He was explaining his reasoning behind the Big Brother revival going to ITV2. He was saying that he hopes it will not only kind of drive people to the upcoming streaming service ITVX uh, that's launching in November, but also pointed to Love Island as one of those shows that consistently could bring people back across eight-week runs to show that it is possible for a big entertainment show to consistently bring in high audiences night after night. And he really wants to emulate that. But then... Channel 4, Ian Katz, came over and said that there was something really depressing about the number of UK reboots in production. And he's not wrong. There are a lot of reboots around at the moment. Channel 4 are guilty of it themselves. They rebooted Changing Rooms not that long ago. The BBC is bringing back Survivor, Gladiators, and obviously ITV with Big Brother. In some ways, a guarantee to bring in an audience. It's established IP the same way adapting a book into a drama works it's quite a quite a good way of reeling in a guaranteed audience but yeah I really liked um Ian Katz said something like uh reboots of TV's microwave moments like a lot of reheated dishes (laughs) a little go a little dig uh I think at some of his fellow PSBs but then Charlotte Moore and her spotlight session for the BBC said that actually by kind of creatively reimagining some of these shows is a really great way of bringing success and it's not easy to reboot shows and she did swipe at the fact that Channel 4 took Bake Off but (laughs) is that a reboot is that a revival that's slightly up for debate yeah I liked the back and forth of the reboots like when I said let's do a volley I kind of was thinking about the volleying of reboot discussion that happened uh, during the festival. I don't think Bake Off is a reboot and I think I do agree with Ian Katz. I want more new content but also I'm gassed for Big Brother and for Gladiators and they've got like a guaranteed audience in definitely me watching the first couple of episodes and so I can see why 
why you do it. Yeah, people absolutely tune in to see what it's like. But then I suppose the challenge is, as kind of Charlotte was saying, if you, you have to really creatively reimagine it because if it isn't good, people watch it, talk about how bad it is and then just never watch it again. And so much of making these big TV moments these days really does feel like it's word of mouth, getting that kind of viral Twitter moment. It reboots are in themselves quite a big risk, even though they seem quite guaranteed to bring in audiences. If you do it badly, it can go so wrong. And because there's that expectation, it's like a bigger fall. Mm, Yeah, if you piss off those loyal fans. Exactly. I think one of the sessions I was in was the Disney Plus session and reboots came up then again. And Mm. Sean Doyle was really interesting on it because obviously Disney isn't a PSB. It's not a linear channel. It's not trying to draw audiences. But he kind of was the tonic to all of this debating on reboots and was like, yeah, I mean, never say never. I rebooted Blind Date for Channel 5 and it went really well. And so why would you not want to try it? And it was like the more calm, laid back (laughs) approach to the reboot discussion. Whilst everyone else was batting around microwave meals and... Yeah, we need to have less microwave metaphors in this world. I just feel (laughs) they never lead to good things. (laughs) But... Speaking of the Disney Plus panel, I really enjoyed it. It was the last last session on the Friday. The last stragglers of the TV festival. I was on the was, train at that point. And everyone was in such a good mood. Like <laughs> Lee Mason, Joanna Devereaux, Sean Doyle. And they were just cracking me up. They were in just such high spirits and a little bit hungover, I think. Um, <laughs> but Disney announced like a really, really solid factual slate that I'm so excited by. The main highlights for me, Wagafa Christie with exclusive access to Clean Rooney. I think my goodness, <laughs> people are kicking themselves that they didn't get that. I mean, Channel Four's got its own Wagafa Christie special coming, but um, this is this is the definitive version, I would say. I think if you've got access to Clean, you've got pretty big chops. Yeah, exactly. So we've got that. They have got a docuseries on Vogue in the 90s, which was the moment when fashion and high fashion kind of became a bit more mainstream with access to Anna Wintour and Edward Enifel. Like, honestly, again, great access. If you can't tell, I'm in love with this slate. Um, (laughs) Then next up, they've got Camden, which is a docuseries looking at Camden and its influence on the music industry and all the great bands and singers that come out of there. Like I'm thinking like Amy Winehouse, the Libertines. They've got a thing with Spence Matthews. His older brother in 1999 was the youngest Briton to summit Mount Everest, but he unfortunately died on the way down. And it's about Spencer kind of teaming up with Bear Grylls and some other explorers and finding his body. Um, I had no then, idea that that was that Spencer Matthews' brother did that. If this one and the other one they announced, wild story, a Keanu Reeves fronted Formula One documentary, which is another one of my things I love. So basically, I think they made this factual slate just for me. It is very tailor made for you, actually. So that was me gushing about the Disney slate. <laughs> <laughs> Swap it onto a slightly more a meteor money-related one when it comes Mm. to deficit financing. (laughs) Yes. Disney and then deficit financing. Disney and deficit financing. (laughs) Um, Not to be linked together. So yeah, I went to this other talk, which I found really interesting, which was how do we avoid a world without indies? And it was basically saying indies, you know, they get a certain amount of commissioning money from the channels 
and then they have to go to um, distributors for deficit funding. And the gist I got from that session is basically commissioning budgets are tight. Therefore, producers are going and more and more deficit funding. And those can't all pay off. Those debts can't all be repaid back. Not every show is a success, but it's a really increasing as a practice and there's a way to fund things. And obviously, distributors themselves are taking the gamble, but it just feels like an economic crisis waiting to happen if we don't interrogate this a little bit more. Mm. Um, it does feel like a bubble that's on the precipice of bursting. Yeah, I think money loomed large over some of these discussions really in a way that I don't think it has before. You know, I remember 20, like 2019, for example, which was the last time we had an in-person Edinburgh Festival. Money was talked in a more of a, you know, hey, can you give any... Uh, any guidance to your commissioning budgets and that was probably about it and this time you know we've got people talking about the recession and deficit funding and the ad market see i i actually thought that they were going to talk about it a lot more and scott brian wrote a column for us uh that's online this week because he was saying when he went in to ask questions he was assuming that there'd be a lot of conversation about the cost of living crisis. And one of the main commissioning and spotlight sessions that actually addressed it was UK TV's Marcus Arthur. He was the only person in the session that really said, I'm really concerned about the looming threat of an advertising recession. Obviously, the streamers that are really shedding subscribers and they might have, you know, deep pockets. But if they keep shedding subscribers and they lose financial backing, then that's a real problem. People are choosing between food and electricity. Are they also going to be looking to subscribe to more streaming platforms or upgrading and investing in ads? Like, it's just there is there is this kind of building bubble and it is it is concerning but i thought i i really thought more people would would address the cost of living crisis i think it's interesting as well with the streamers getting into ad funded you know Mm. if you're paying for your advertisements and you're deciding whether you want to pay 10k to put it on netflix or 10k to put it on i don't know a smaller channel like uk tv not to single them out you're going to be thinking about that budget as well, which would be really interesting to see how that fares ad-wise. Mm. I'd also like you to highlight the Brian Cox session because I thought, I mean, it was so fascinating and he really didn't mince his words. And despite his fears of what he called the HBO Gestapo hovering <laughs> around in case he leaked any succession spoilers, he kept coming back to this point about the fact that he grew up in poverty and obviously now he's one of Hollywood's most well-known actors. Everyone knows Logan Roy from Succession, even if you haven't watched it. And um, he said that he doesn't think that he would make it in TV now, partly because of the closing of like rep theatres, just lack of access, public school, educated people getting a leg up. The issue of class, I think, can often be forgotten about in television and current schemes don't necessarily go far enough and then he coupled this with the uh, announcement that we had exclusively that he was doing a documentary of channel five all about wealth and i think it's such an interesting commission for channel five it's huge talent i'm really interested in watching this and it really just demonstrates the gap between rich and poor Mm, I'm really excited for that as well. One of the sessions that I really, really enjoyed and I really want to shout out just for being so well produced 
was the true crime wave session. So I went expecting it to be a commissioners talking about true crime, what they're looking for, what they're up to, that kind of thing. And just but it started with kind of 15 minutes of Dr. Sarah Payne, who was a victim of a crime. Her daughter Sarah was murdered. And it was talking about how producers and TV channels and things can respect victims and I think hearing it you hear it on panels a lot and about how important it is but hearing it from an actual a victim a survivor you know a woman who's campaigned throughout her life for justice it just was it was a really powerful way to start a session like actually be reminded of the impact of entertainment essentially so that was amazing and And the responsibilities that broadcasters and producers have to consider yeah, and then uh, she said she was a fan of true crime as well, so it wasn't like she was coming at it from a way of you know being like, this needs to mm. end. But then Dan Lowe made a really interesting comment as well from Channel 5. He was saying, you know, you worry that people might scrimp on duty of care, but you know, people need to understand when they're making true crime that when you're involved, you're involved for years, you can't switch off and say goodbye, you become part of these victims' lives. But they were kind of saying, you know, with the boom and the explosion of popularity of true crime, you're not going to have these well-trod producers who know exactly how to handle these situations and how to deal with the aftercare and how to deal with the duty of care. You know, you're going to have smaller companies that have never made a true crime doc before getting this opportunity. You know, maybe not having as much experience to deal with the fact that you know that families are going to have to deal with their son or daughter's murder being on TV or things like that. The panel all agreed. And then he said he has the sense that it's, the next genre in which something is going to go wrong. And he says that he like just feels like they need to increase their vigilance. There's definitely something out there brewing already, kind of alluding to the Jeremy Cole show and the daytime TV kind of bubble that burst um, a couple of years ago, you know, saying, you know, true crime has very big potential to be the, ne- the next genre that um, ends in a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note... (laughs) Cheerful stuff, but I think, yeah, it just really was interesting. Really important thing about Edinburgh TV Festival is that it really gets into the weeds of the biggest issues and topics and themes in television. That's why it's there. That's, you know, what it does. And I think this year people really were getting into the midst of some really important subjects. It was so fascinating. It was just so nice to be back. And I do think that generally, even though a lot of the panels were discussing serious things, the overall mood was so positive. Like people were seeing each other that hadn't seen each other for years. Everyone was in such high spirits that, you know, people going for the drinks afterwards, going for like dinners. It was just it was so nice. And I did leave very fragile, but in a very, very good mood. It was so nice to see people. Yeah, I left with COVID and had the world's most boring bank holiday and I still was like, that was a fun week. That was a good, I like my job a lot. It was full of like brilliant, creative minded people and it was a really nice experience. And somehow, despite it being so busy, you managed to find a little bit of time to sit down with Patrick Walters, who is the exec producer on Heartstopper. Yes. So I went to the Heartstopper panel um, and then I spoke to him afterwards. The panel had him, Alice Oseman, who created the Heartstopper graphic novel and now works on the TV show as well. And then two of the actors, Karina Brown and Kizzy Edgel. And as a group, they blew me away. I loved the panel and I loved Heartstopper when I watched it. I 
binge watched it. It's very, just a really nice show. And it was great to chat to Patrick about it. And I think I gush a little bit in the <laughs> middle of being like, well, this is really sweet. And obviously we were at Edinburgh and I did record this in a corridor. So there is, there's not background noise noise, but there are, you can hear some bits and bobs going on, but it's atmosphere. All the fun of Edinburgh TV Festival. <laughs> Let's take a listen. So hi, Patrick. Hello. Thank you for joining me today in this corridor, We're in basically. A corridor. It's all but good. hopefully, this microphone will do its <laughs> Pick job. Up my thoughts. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think a really great place just to kind of start at the very beginning of it all. Really, how yeah. did you come across Heartstopper as the graphic novel? So I work at a production company called Seesaw Films, and so my day job is um, a lot of the time looking for material that could be a TV show or meeting screenwriters and talking about ideas and all that sort of thing. And I just, I actually, I've been asked this so many times, and I can't remember exactly how it came across my desk, but I was aware that um, there was this graphic novel about two boys at school who fell in love, and I thought it sounded amazing. And at that point, it was self-published by Alice. She'd done a Kickstarter campaign. And I ordered one of the first volumes off that and read it and was like, oh, my God, it's amazing. And <laughs> and then it all it happened quite quickly because I, I, yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to meet Alice and say, come and adapt your amazing work to TV, do it with Seesaw and me, and it'll be fun. Mm. And so, yeah, it all sort of, yeah, as soon as I saw it, I was like, ah, this is amazing. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk about kind of how Heartstopper fills a gap in the market. You know, it's like a more uplifting yeah. gay story. Yeah. Was that something you were searching for or did you kind of come across it and be like, this is what I want? Or was it a bit of both? I think it was finding it and just responding to it emotionally, first and foremost, because as a reader, I just became a fan instantly because I felt like in following the story of uh, Nick and Charlie, that I was somehow being represented or my younger self was being represented in this way that I'd never felt before. And so I instantly had this sort of unshakable belief in it. And I think it sort of woke me up to the fact that there really should have been a TV show aimed at that younger demographic featuring predominantly LGBTQ plus characters and why hadn't there been? And so once, you know, I got over the sort of like the passion and the fandom and I kind of put the, you know, professional producer hat on, I was like, we've got to make this. This has to happen. So, yeah, it's Alice. It's credit to Alice, I think. Yeah, it is an amazing series story. I kind of love hearing about how it all came to be as yeah. well. Like, I think it's really nice, that just the passion between like everyone that's making yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And so you decided to take it to Netflix. Yeah. And was that the only place that you took it or did you explore other options? It was actually the only place we took it. Um, and we did it in a kind of slightly different way in that usually what I do is when you want to pitch to your potential broadcaster streaming home, you go through the drama commissioners. But with this one, Alice and I felt really kind of, yeah, we had a real strong belief that we should go to kids and family because we wanted to privilege that younger teen demographic and say this show is for you and that's the reason we have to make it um, and so we, we met some really lovely kids and family execs Dominique Bizet and Alexi Wheeler at Netflix and they just had complete faith and belief in it from the beginning uh, so yeah. yeah 
And in terms of, you know, obviously Alice has already written the story, but I think, you know, it's really praised for its, like, portrayal of, like, queer joy and it's so happy. But yeah. how do you balance that with, like, the reality of that sometimes it's just, like, actually quite shit to be a teenager in yeah. general? I think, it, yeah. Like, <laughs> without any, other, like, any issues at all. Like, it's just hard. I think it's always hard, right? It's yeah. always a bit shit being a teenager. But what I've learned through this process is that teenagers are so brave and they can do anything literally you know it was i've never worked with a young cast before and we all we really wanted them to be actual teenagers playing teenagers so to have that kind of youthful excitement on set every day just reminded me and 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 brought me back to when i was a teenager that you really put yourself out there emotionally Uh, you're you're following your ambitions, you're trying to become an adult, you're doing all of these crazy new scary things and it's so inspiring to watch and I think that's why, you know, the show is joyful but it doesn't shy away from the toughness of being a teenager, it just puts it out there and it really roots for the characters and it it wants them to succeed and I think, yeah, that's an ingredient for success. Yeah, I think what really struck me about it was that it really took me back to that time when you were like 16, 17, 18 And you're like, my, I am really fixing my identity here. Like, I'm. this is what I like, this is what yeah. I don't like, this is who I am. Yeah, I, th- I think we wanted teenagers today, like the Gen Z audience that um, it, it's aimed at, to go, I can see myself in this. This mm. feels like it's for me. And I think uh, in trying to achieve that level of, of authenticity, older viewers also hopefully can look back to their teenage years and see themselves in it as well. I mean, I certainly did that because I had such an affinity with Charlie because I felt like when I was 16, 17, I had curly dark hair. I was sort of anxious coming to terms with my sexuality. And so I just really had that kind of like bond to that character. And when I first met Alice, actually, I I even took a picture of myself that I thought I looked quite Charlie-esque and I wanted, I wanted Alice to know, I was like, look, this is me, I was Charlie. Like, I, please let yeah, me produce please this. Please let me produce this and protect this character because he's, he's, yeah, I see myself in it. So. Oh, that's really nice as well. And obviously, you know, casting, you're casting teenagers. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that in terms of like, it's a sin kind of was like, we're only casting queer actors to yeah. play queer characters. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, when you're 16, 17, you might think, sexuality is one thing and later in life yeah. it can become a very different thing yeah totally um yeah was that a conscious thing i think i think what we did and how alice and our brilliant director a Lynn approached it together as a creative team is we just wanted everyone who was a part of heartstopper the production to know that it was being led by creative people who were part of the lgbt community and that was what we put out there mm. and it you know, it's none of my business and I would never ask any teenager sexuality. It's like, yeah. you know, it's not something that, that any of us would ever want to do. But I think there is also a sort of an LGBT mindedness and energy that we absolutely had to achieve. And we had to cast authentically where we could, um, but we weren't, we didn't want to put diktats out around, mm. you know, like discussing things that's just inappropriate to do in a professional context. And I think, you know, that's how you approach a queer show with actors that age, and, I, and, it, and it worked out. I think mm. We've got brilliant cast. Yeah, and I guess way. you know, as a teenager, you gravitate towards kind of what you what you yeah. want. To and see. also, the, the graphic novel is out there, so you know, 
these amazing young actors were coming to auditions knowing the, the webcomic mm. and seeing the characters on the page and getting what it was about. So we didn't have to do that much heavy lifting. And you had an intimacy coordinator on set, yeah. and we recently had Ito O'Brien, who kind of yeah. found the role, like yeah. founded the whole principle of it um, on our podcast. And she was talking about, you know, just how important it is. And I just wanted yeah. if you could shed some light on how that worked on your set and how you found it. Yeah, it was an amazing process, I think, because there's a level of intimacy in Heartstopper um, that is about innocence and fun and excitement and a complete rejection of sort of shame and, uh, and, and, and feeling sort of like, you know, you can't express yourself. And so with David Thackeray, who was our intimacy coordinator, he came to the rehearsal period where the cast would get to know each other and we were workshopping characters and they were sort of doing lots of you know fun exercises about the psychology of who they were playing and having David there to be a sounding board for them if they had any questions about the intimacy and how we were going to do it was brilliant because on the one hand you tick a box where you're like this is a professional environment and the actors need to feel safe and consent needs to be given and there can't be any spontaneity that makes anyone feel uncomfortable and so David brilliantly covers us there by, by, by going through all of those things with the actors. But then on top of that, we're all really excited to make great TV. And so he was able with, the, with our director, Eros, to inspire the cast to go, what do you want to do? How do you want this intimacy to be on screen? Like, what are your thoughts and how can you feel in control of the story that you're telling? And so it was just great. And I think, yeah, the cast, not to speak for them, but I think everyone loved David and it was a yeah, really great part of it. Yeah, I think it's such a good kind of role that's come about really. Yeah everything and you know, you've got like a real cast of really young actors so it's yeah. kind of like a duty of care thing and Definitely. you know and also bless them they're just like quite young and just being thrust into this mega mega netflix show that must be Definitely. insane for them and you to witness as well i mean i was really nervous throughout the process because as soon as i realized you know along with alice and eros we're gonna cast kit like he's our nick or we're gonna cast joe joe's our charlie that was so exciting for us but also it came with it, this knowledge that their lives were going to change, you know, because it's a big, a big thing to be, you know, one of the main characters in a Netflix show. And the, the noise and the buzz and the kind of legacy of that that will last your whole life is massive and unpredictable. And so for me, I, I care. I'm a sort of the creative custodian of the TV show and I just want it to be the best it can be. But also then you sort of go, oh, I want them to have a really brilliant experience. And, um, and so, yeah, a lot of... A lot of unknowns and a lot of lot of nerves around that. But I think they became such good friends and they supported each other through it. And, and that was a really key thing. And I wanted to talk about kind of the soundtrack because I really loved the soundtrack. Yeah, it was very it like integral to the story as well, which I also yeah. thought was great. And it was very, you know, it, like I said, it, the whole show kind of just really threw me back to being like, who am I? What do I like? Who do I like? Yes, and good. like also like, uh, like this obsession with like, finding who you are through things like music and being very like, I like this specific type yeah, of music. Yeah, I yeah. am this type of girl kind of thing. Yeah. And how did you build that up and also make it really feel like something that they were listening to? I mean, that was the funnest. Well, I'm not sure. It was all fun, but that was one of yeah. the bits of making the TV series that was so exciting because even from very early on in the development um, process where we didn't have actors, we didn't have a production, we just Alice and I on WhatsApp, we would send each other songs and be like, this could be the moment where Nick types, am I gay into the search engine and press enter? And we, so we had this feeling of what song might work there. 
and that just made the whole early development of the show have this brilliant soundtrack already in our minds and I think Alice and I just really love the music and you know an artist like Baby Queen who we discovered through the development process and we're like this is really just feels so right the energy's right and then we were lucky enough once we've made it to get Baby Queen to come in and watch it and then she wrote a song called Colors of You and like the whole thing there was just like a, like a magic sort of feeling to how the soundtrack came about no one we never fought over songs we always knew exactly what would fit and it always did so it was yeah one of the really good bits of it amazing oh yeah i love the soundtrack and just to kind of like wrap it up obviously you are green up to series three yeah what is the future i mean there's lots of spin-offs in Gosh. the graphic novel series and yeah. books and things like that are you keeping like half a mind on if <laughs> The Oseman verse. I yeah. Think, so the <laughs> I mean, look, it's just such a joy to get to work with Alice because their creativity and their vision is just like second to none. It's it's such a brilliant thing. And there is only one Alice Oseman. So at the moment, we're just completely focused on season two, which is going to start shooting soon. And that's very exciting, but taking up a lot of time and energies. So we're just taking it one, one thing at a time. But yeah, if, if I could work with Alice forevermore, that would be brilliant. So excuse the uh, background noise on there, but I think I did well with the edit. I hope I did well with the edit. <laughs> no, I thought it was such a nice chat. Heartstopper is such a wholesome show, and so was your so was your chat. It was really nice, um, and that is kind of us for the week. So thank you so much for listening to this Edinburgh TV special. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. And next week's going to be our last episode of the season, which was meant to end weeks ago anyway, but we kept yeah. going. So We just couldn't resist a couple more podcasts. Exactly. So we've got one more episode left and then we'll take a short break. But we will be back again. Don't you worry. <laughs> well, bye for now. See you next week. Bye. bye.